Welcome to the Books and Bites podcast. Each month, we bring you book recommendations and discuss the bites and beverages to pair with them. I'm Carrie Green, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Michael Cunningham and Adam Wheeler. Hello. Hello. So today we're talking about the third prompt in the Books and Bites challenge, a book that retells or adapts another story. And we're changing the podcast format up a little bit with this episode and dividing this month's discussion into two separate shorter episodes. So today we'll give a detailed review of one book, and then in a couple of weeks we'll air another episode with some brief recommendations from each of us. And this is kind of an experiment, so please let us know what you think. You can email us at podcast at jesspublib.org. So, Adam and Michael, literary adaptations are fairly popular. Why do you think people find them so appealing? I think um, with retellings that maybe you can... uh, Explore another character or, you know, continue the story further on. Um, I saw that recently there was a um, kind of retelling of Great Gatsby. I think it's called Mick telling about his backstory. Hmm. Um, I think it's got pretty good reviews. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like with adaptations, like I've seen on uh in our graphic novel collection, there's adaptations of Moby Dick and Octavia Butler's uh, story. So I think that's a good gateway into, you know, literature and um, that you might not, you know, like Moby Dick is pretty, uh, um, when you see it, it's, it's, it's a pretty big book. It's So I think graphic novel might be a little more uh, palatable. Or <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> As someone who likes to cut corners myself, uh, I could also <laughs> see it being, you know, it's a familiar story, familiar characters. It takes some of the work out of it if you mm-hmm. take, yeah. like, a literary work or something that is not covered by copyright anymore and then retell the story. It just makes it easier. Unless you do badly and you just make it look hard. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like... Was it? I think last year, maybe the year before, I did one called um, "The Ballad of Black Tom." It's a short novella. It's a retelling of H.P. Lovecraft's "The The Horror at Red Hook," which is a very racist and xenophobic tale, and just kind of, you know, made it his own and able to tell that from a you know, uh, person of color standpoint and. Yeah, and I was gonna I was gonna say something similar is that um, I think a lot of classics didn't have space for more diverse voices, and so that is an opportunity. I know a lot. There are a lot, which I'll talk about next um, in the next episode. There are a lot of adaptations of Jane Austen novels, um, like from um, I think. Jane Austen in Pakistan or, you know, all kinds of different places. Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies. Yes, of course. (laughs) Though I have to admit, even that didn't make Jane Austen palatable. (laughs) I really tried. I did. (laughs) 
So my first book is The Mirror Wife by Maria Davina Headley. And it's a feminist retelling of Beowulf set in contemporary times. So speaking of um, original classics that maybe you haven't read, (laughs) this is one of those for me. I think I might have read a few excerpts of Beowulf in high school. Um, This adaptation focuses on the women in the story. So it's another one of those um, adaptations that takes a look at maybe marginal characters from the original ones. Um, Here, Grendel's mother becomes Dana, a former U.S. soldier of an unspecified war in the Middle East. Dana was captured by jihadists during the war and was nearly beheaded. She remembers the swing of the blade and nothing else except waking up to find herself six months pregnant. She doesn't know who the father is or if the sex was consensual. She eventually escapes and returns to the mountain town where she grew up, only to find that, quote, all that's left is a bright white light, a fence around new buildings, and a mountain, unquote. Dana hides in a cave inside the mountain, which is where she births and raises her son, Gren. The new buildings Dana sees belong to Harrett Hall, a gated suburb where Willa Harrett lives. Willa's dead father-in-law founded the suburb. Her husband Roger is a plastic surgeon, while Willa is the quintessential wealthy suburban wife, spending her time doing Pilates, entertaining, and trying to control her own monstrous thoughts. Dana's and Willa's worlds collide when Gren begins to explore the world beyond the mountain, befriending Willa's young son, Dylan. In addition to Dana's and Willa's points of view, some chapters are told through the point of view of a chorus of Harriet Hall widows. Others are voiced by a chorus of godlike voices from the mountain. A few chapters are told from the point of view of the character who stands in for Beowulf, Officer Ben Wolf, a veteran of the same war that Dana served in. And as I mentioned before, I was not very familiar with the story of Beowulf before reading The Mirror Wife, and I don't think you have to be to enjoy it. A quick read of the Wikipedia entry, (laughs) yay Wikipedia, um, on Beowulf gave me enough background information. Uh, Grendel has usually been portrayed as the monster, but Headley reconsiders that. Is Gren really a monster, or just an innocent boy who desires a connection with an outside world? Is his mother Dana a monster, or is she a victim of war and trauma, who just wants what is best for her son? Is Officer Wolf a hero, or another victim made monstrous through war? And what of the suburban housewife, who seems to look out only for herself? As Willa thinks at one point, quote, There's a whole world filled with monsters. They're everywhere. Why acknowledge the monster in the mirror? Unquote. I found this book very suspenseful. I'm not sure if it's suspenseful enough for Michael, but, <laughs> but it was certainly suspenseful enough for me. Action and battle scenes were constantly winding the tension up and down. At several points, I thought I'd reached the climax of the action, only to realize I had half the novel left to read. I suspect this must be similar to the original Beowulf, but I can't say for sure. Um, The book was also a little more violent than I normally like, but it never felt gratuitous. 
The writing imbues this contemporary version with lyricism, satire, and myth. Here's a brief example from the voices inside the mountain. Quote, Where the wilderness, the hidden river, and the stone caves, where the snakes and songbirds, the storm water, the brightness beneath the darkest pools. We're an old thing made of everything else, and we've been here a long time. Unquote. You might need a tasty beverage to help you through the tense moments of this book, so here's a cocktail inspired by one of Willa's party parties. An aquafaba whiskey sour. Aquafaba is a fancy name for chickpea water, <laughs> which Willa purees, quote, into a vegan cocktail foam she read about on the internet. This foam can take the place of egg whites in cocktail recipes or meringues. We eat a lot of chickpeas in our house. Sometimes I think I'm going to turn into one. So why let all of that chickpea water go to waste <laughs> when you can whip up a nice cocktail with it? Um, I tried it. Um, I actually tried making both the gin fizz and the whiskey sour with the aquafaba. And... Um, while I normally prefer gin drinks here, I preferred the whiskey sour. Um, I wouldn't bother with a blender. You just need a cocktail shaker to create the perfect layer of froth. And I promise it won't have the slightest hint of chickpea in the final flavor. <laughs> that was going to be my first question. Yeah. You can really taste the chickpea in this. <laughs> nope, you just tasted yeah. whiskey and lemon and... I'm sure it's delicious, but what it makes me think of is when you really want to drink and then there's not very much in the kitchen, so you're like, oh, I got like half a bottle of gin and a can of chickpeas. Let's see what we can do with this. (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, I wonder how did they come up? Who was the first person who came up with this? Right? (laughs) Someone very thirsty. Yes. Yes. Uh... The book also sounds really interesting. Um, I, I'm not going to lie. I had to Wikipedia for mine also because I didn't <laughs> read it. Uh, we read an excerpt in my private school, which I'm sure left out a lot of stuff. And I watched the Angelina Jolie movie. Yeah. I have no idea what happened. <laughs> Something was- about a monster and a sword. I got <laughs> yeah, there were a, l- a lot of monsters. Um, now, the author actually has a translation of Beowulf that um, came out, I think, this past year or maybe the year before. Um, so it's totally in verse. It's her translate a new translation. I think it's the first time a woman has translated Beowulf. Um, wow. So I think that, you know, it sounds like she takes maybe, I don't know if I would say liberties, but she varies in some of the traditional translations um so it might be one that you could you could read for this one as well i i'm curious about it um i I would like to read it sometime yeah sounds interesting like a new viewpoint from someone who is translating it like surely that would change some stuff Mm -hmm. maybe for the better (laughs) right exactly
This is not my favorite choice of book that I've done for this yet. Uh, in fact, there's been really few books that I absolutely loathed reading over the years. Uh, Ernest Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises is right at the top of the list, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry to say that uh, this adaptation is a new addition to the list. Anna Kay, A Love Story by Jenny Lee, an adaptation of Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, would be a wonderful choice for anyone who wants realistic fiction that focuses on social drama. So, uh, after binging all of Bridgerton this last weekend, <laughs> I felt really ready for more romance and scandal, but, uh, bit off more than I could chew with this book. <laughs> and that's not to say it's full of really interesting romance and scandal, because... From what I read, it is not. Um, I have to admit, I haven't read Anna Karenina, because I just don't have the time or the interest. Uh, the novel focuses on an affair between members of Russian high society, but is also credited with commentary on imperialism and even agricultural policy of the time. Uh, and <laughs> I believe it tops out at almost a thousand pages. So, no thank you. Um yeah, I've never tackled that one either. Yeah, yeah. That I, I got the synopsis from Wikipedia. I can't lie about that. <laughs> um, Anna Kay is a modern, young adult retelling of the story, seemingly without most of the importance. Um, granted, I only made it halfway through the book, so, you know, maybe there's more there that I haven't seen yet. Uh, most of the characters are high-society New York teens who can blow more money on a shopping trip than I make in a month. So highly relatable. Uh, <laughs> like in the classic work, there are quite a few characters, which leads to constant introductions and lengthy background information that really, it makes the story feel like an elevator ride where someone pressed all the buttons. You just stop and go, and it's the slowest ride ever. You just want to get off. Um, <laughs> while Anna Kay is, a, is wonderful for its unique perspective in YA publishing, because uh, most of the characters are Korean, uh, it takes about half the book before anything uh, of consequence really seems to be talked about. I did start to see some very honest human portrayals of struggling with addiction and family members. Uh, however, this was heavily overshadowed by ingenuine teen characters uh, and extremely misleading social situations. The pinnacle of unlikely situations I reached was a 90s hip-hop teen party sponsored by Red Bull, where <laughs> alcohol flows from flasks and copious drug use abounds with no negative consequences. I, I don't know why Red Bull would be sponsoring a party like this. Um, like, I realize this is fiction, but please be aware, teens, that you cannot slam down vodka, Red Bull, and cocaine and still be lucid <laughs> enough to form complex social analysis in your head on a loud dance floor. Or, once the party's <laughs> over, go roam the streets of New York alone at night. Like, in fact, you probably get really sick. Um, you might make some regrettable choices or even land yourself on the hospital. That, that doesn't even touch on just roaming the streets of New York alone. That's so <laughs> dangerous. If I'm being honest, the fact that this adaptation reimagined Tolstoy's 30-something characters as teens is so obvious that it hurts. Not that it was kept a secret by any means, but like you're really aware of it when you're going through the book. It holds all the sincerity of a live-action Disney show, but with more mature themes. 
Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. This is so negative. This is so negative. There's probably great things about this book that just didn't hit it for me. Um, <laughs> boiling down romantic adultery to some cheating amongst teens really doesn't carry the same weight. Like, oh, I've ruined my marriage, but I love this person. Like, no. That's not what's happening here. Um, Most of the story is also bogged down with pop culture references that were already aging when the book was published. Like, kids aren't talking about Game of Thrones now. They're just not. Um, Nobody is. No. (laughs) It's it's past. It was already passing. Um, Forced teen lingo that really sounds like adults trying to make themselves sound young and cool. Um... And long, unnecessary analysis of 80s movies. We really didn't need this whole deep analysis of the heat. Like, no. Um, While Anna Kay is just about everything I hate in a book, that doesn't mean that it won't be a great choice for the right audience. Older high school students and young adults who enjoy social drama may enjoy the story. Um, I like that you're leaving a, a little window open there. there. You know, there's a little window because everyone is different. Everyone has social tastes. Um, like, my idea of relaxing with a good book is not parsing through deep, deep, like, social anxiety in teens. Like, that's it's not what I'm going for. Um I, I think I can relate. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, like, the, the level of social awareness that these kids have is not believable. Like, I had social anxiety at that age, but I was not able to accurately, like, assess every person in the room and what they're thinking. No, that's ridiculous. <laughs> for some, uh, anyway, for some sweet to go with my probably too sour review, I suggest <laughs> indulging in a traditional Korean Valentine's treat, uh, papero cake. I probably pronounced that wrong. I'm sorry. This tasty treat consists of Swiss roll cake coated with a mix of melted chocolate and heavy cream, surrounded by a wall of papero or paki sticks, uh, and garnished with pistachios. For papero cake and other Korean recipes, check out Korean Cooking Simplified by Lori Yun, available from JCPL on Hoopla Digital. That was one spicy take. Oh. Yeah, I, I sort of feel bad, but also, like, this this whole book went through editing and everything, and they're just like, yeah, let's do it. It sort of feels like this wasn't meant to be a teen book. It was meant to be for college students and maybe even older than that. But the publisher was like, you know what? We like this idea, but make it for teens. So they had to scale it back and drop in lingo and make it sound like teens. Yeah. My recommendation is Victor Laval's Destroyer, written by Victor Laval and illustrated by Dietrich Smith. This is a graphic novel that reimagines Mary Shelley's Frankenstein using the turbulent socio-political climate we are currently seeing in the United States to tell this story, but also serves as a sort of sequel to Shelley's original classic. The, the story opens with Frankenstein's monster living in Antarctica. He has come to despise humanity over the years. A shadowy organization, which is referred to as the Lab, has been looking for him ever since he disappeared. Wanting, wanting to bring him back to civilization so they can unlock the secrets of his immortality. 
When the lab gets word from a ship that they have made contact with the monster, they call in their top alchemists, a.k.a. scientists. Two agents, George Byron and Percy Shelley, have been tasked with tracking down their most brilliant alchemist, Dr. Josephine Baker, who has quite the family tree, being the last remaining descendant of Victor Frankenstein and all. Consumed by grief and anger, when her 12-year-old son was shot dead by a police officer on, on the way home from a baseball game, Dr. Baker, using Victor's notes, has channeled it into bringing her son, Akai, back to life. As the agents Shelley and Byron locate the doctor and discover what she's been up to, the lab has sent reinforcements, a giant mech suit known as the Bride, whose history Dr. Baker complicates things. And unknown to anyone else is that the monster is not far behind on a war path to stamp out the Frankenstein lineage for good. This graphic novel brilliantly uses the Frankenstein story to tell a brand new and highly poignant story about racial injustice and police violence against African-Americans in its long, terrible history in the United States. There's one really powerful scene in the novel that emphasizes how America truly views, views and treats its black citizens. In the scene, the director of the lab excuses the destruction of the monster, saying how sorry she feels for it, how much it's been through, and how often it's been betrayed. Akai's father, looking on at the bloody aftermath of Frankenstein's monster, notices the ridiculous hypocrisy of it all, saying, quote, Look at the backflips people do to find the humanity in that monster. But when they saw a boy like mine, they had no love to spare, unquote. Even though it deals with heavy subject matter, the graphic novel does manage to close on a hopeful note. If you're a fan of Shelley's Frankenstein or, or you've read Victor Laval's novella The Ballad of Black Tom, a re-imaging re of H.P. Lovecraft's The Horror Red Hook, which I've covered in a previous episode, or enjoy watching or reading Lovecraft Country by Matt Ruff, I would highly recommend checking this out from our graphic novel section in our adult collection or as an ebook from the always available Hoopla Digital. So I'll pair this retelling of Frankenstein with the perfectly named pre-prohibition era cocktail, the Corpse Reviver Number no. 2, found on the website postprohibition.com. Back in the day, it was drunk in the morning after a night of over-imbibing. Uh, I tried it on a whim once at a bar and really enjoyed its really uh, its citrusy and herbal notes. So if you're feeling adventurous and would like to make one for yourself, it calls for three-quarters ounce of gin. Contro, Lille Blanc, and a few drops of acid for rinsing the glass. So I love how the antidote to drinking is more, more drinking. Yeah, the hair of the dog. <laughs> it's, it's, I guess it was their, uh, their uh, Bloody Mary. Right. Reprohibition. Well, I do think it's fun that Frankenstein is such a popular choice for recreations. It's like, it's in all kinds of stuff. I have. I got up when you were talking because I have this comic. It's Frankenstein Agents of Shade. <laughs> it's a <decent> comic. <laughs> um, there's also uh, I can't remember the name of it is right now. A graphic novel biography uh, about Shelley um, about Mary Shelley's life while she was writing Frankenstein. It's a young adult Ooh. book. It's really good. I highly recommend it. Thanks for listening to the Books and Bites podcast. For more information about the podcast or the Books and Bites challenge, visit our website at jesspublib.org slash books hyphen bites. 
Our theme song is Breakers by Scott Whitten from his album In Close Quarters with the Enemy. You can find out more about Scott and his music on his website, adoreforadesk.com.